How you guys doing this morning? Oh, it's kind of pitiful, but oh well. I'll, I'll get over it. I'll get over it. Feelings will be a bit hurt, but it's fine. <laughs> Lovely morning, eh? Nice, nice warm weather. Beautiful out. Nice sunny, sunny day. At least there's no smoke anymore. <laughs> I want to kick us off this morning um, with a passage of scripture that isn't as uplifting as the one I just read. Um, one that I, I've read a lot in the past and been quite confused. And how many of you guys have a passage of scripture that when you read it, you don't like it? Any, is that no? That's not just me. Okay, that's good. I'm I'm glad. This is this is one of those passages because it's very it's very humbling and it's very challenging. And it's this passage from uh, Romans from Romans seven, uh, written by a guy named. Paul. And Paul is, he was an apostle of Jesus. He was, uh, he's pretty well known. I mean, if you look at the Bible, um, scholars attribute between eight and 13 books of the Bible to Paul in the, all in the New Testament. All these crazy theological letters to people, all this crazy, amazing stuff. He was a smart guy. He was a good guy. He was an amazing theologian. And originally, um, we, we know that he was uh, what we'd call a Pharisee, which means he was an Israelite, he was Jewish, and uh, he studied the law, the, the law of God that God outlined in the Old Testament. Um, and and he, he studied the law religiously, and he tried to follow the law religiously because the belief of the day was, if I follow all of the rules that God outlined in this law, which was a lot of rules, um, then I'll be holy then I'll be good, then, then I'll be righteous, then, then God, will, God will like me. And Paul, he's a Pharisee, and he knows all of the rules so well, and he knows them in such depth, but he finds himself unable to actually follow those laws. Until one day he comes into an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and, and everything changed. So Romans 7, he, he writes these words, and he says, I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many of you guys are like Paul? <laughs> I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? So here we, we find Paul and he's sharing this internal struggle. This in struggle between who he wants to be and who he finds himself to be. And I'm sure this is a struggle that most of us can relate to. Uh, we know what we want to do. We know what is right. But we find ourselves constantly being dragged back to the things that we don't want to do. We want to follow God. We want to obey God. But we're constantly being dragged back to the things that we know are wrong. 
So I want to talk to you guys today on a, on a topic that can be quite difficult for many Christians to understand and to, to follow because it kind of goes against what we believe about ourselves at our core. So I want to talk today, I want to contrast, like, uh, talk about how, how we see ourselves versus how God sees us. And I've titled this message, Through the Eyes of a Sinner. Long time ago, um, when I was about, uh, my mom tells me I was about three years old. This is one of my earliest memories uh, from when I, was, when I was a kid. One of the most clear memories I, I have as, as a kid. Um, when I was about three, I was a bit of a troublesome child. I mean, nothing really changed over the years. Uh, I just got better at hiding it. But, but you see, when I was three, um, my parents, like most parents, had uh, very strict rules for bedtime going to bed at this time, and their expectations were fairly simple as well, but, but you know, like, we're going to put you to bed at this time, you're going to stay in bed and go to sleep, um, and you're not going to get out of bed unless you need to, like, pee or you're terrified of a thunderstorm or something crazy happens, you know? Fairly, fairly simple expectations. But me and my parents, we didn't totally see eye to eye on these expectations. See, they wanted me to go to bed, and I wanted to stay up late and play with my toys. Fairly typical for, for a child, I think. And so we had this routine that kind of went on um, in which my parents, they would, I'd, I'd be playing with my toys before bed, and my parents would be like, okay, it's time to go to bed, and I don't really totally remember the routine, but I assume I went, and I'd brush my teeth, and I'd put on my pajamas, and then I'd crawl into bed, and they'd tuck me in, and they'd pray with me, and then let me fall asleep a little bit, and then like kind of slowly creep out of the room, you know, like parent walk? You're like really quiet, because, oh my goodness, if there's going to be a noise, they're going to wake up. And then I, I, as they were doing this, though, I would pop an eye open, and watch them kind of sneak out of the room, and then watch that kind of sliver of light from the hallway just kind of close and go as the door closed. And then I'd hear their footsteps walking away, like a little bit louder because they're not as scared of me uh, waking up anymore. And I'd wait for a second, wait for another second, wait for a third second. And then as quietly as I could, I would jump out of bed, run to my closet, rip the closet door open, grab a box of toys of Legos or blocks or something and just dump them everywhere on the floor. And I knew what I was doing was not necessarily the, the best thing because I knew if my parents caught on, I would be in so much trouble. But I had a plan. You have to understand, I had this plan. If I heard footsteps in the hall, my plan was to jump back into my bed, throw the covers back over me, and pretend to be asleep. Simple plan, except I didn't really think it through, because if my parents decided, hey, we're going to check on Darian, and they opened the door and took one step into the room, they would probably step on a block of Lego. And as that excruciating pain that can only come from stepping on a block of Lego coursed through their body, a thought would probably pop into their head of, Darian's not asleep right now. 
But that was my plan. That was my plan. And for, I don't know how long I did this for, but it was for probably a couple months where they would tuck me in, wait till they left, hop out of bed, and I'd play with Lego or blocks or something. Until one, one day, I, one night, I remember um, I was playing with blocks. You know, like wooden blocks and big old wooden blocks. And uh, my, my mom, she tucked me in and she prayed with me and she walked out of the room and I heard the door close and then the, the latch just click. And I'm like, okay, all right. And then I waited for her feet to, to leave and climbed out of bed and pulled the blocks out and dumped them all over the floor as, as was typical. And that night I decided I wanted to build a, a castle out of these blocks. So I had blocks strewn everywhere and I kind of also decided, like three-year-old me thought it would be really cool if I built a castle that kind of started at the bottom of my bed and then ended on top. So it was like a castle that was perched on a hillside. So that part of the castle was on the top, on the bed. There's blocks all over my bed, and then part of the castle was on the floor, and blocks all over my floor. And, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun until I heard footsteps in the hall. Boom, 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 boom. I'm like, uh-oh. And then I heard my doorknob turn. Creak. I'm like, uh-oh. I'm in trouble. I'm in so much trouble. And so I jumped into bed not even worrying about putting the comforter over me or covering myself up. Blocks are strewn everywhere all over the floor. Blocks are all over my bed. I have a block digging into my back and I'm pretending to be asleep. <laughs> my mom opens the door and I kind of do the whole sit up and like rub your eyes pretending you've been asleep and, and she's crying. And she looks at me and she tells me that her dad, my, my Bopa, had, had just passed away. And I don't really remember what happened after that. I, I don't remember if I stayed up with her for a little bit or went straight back to bed. But I do know that whenever I got back to bed, I took some time when I cleaned up all the blocks and put them back in, in the bin that they were in and I put them back in the closet. I crawled into bed. And as I was falling asleep, I just had this one thought in my head. That because I had stayed up late playing with blocks, I was responsible for my grandpa's death. This was my punishment for doing what is wrong because, you see, I, I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew what I was doing was disobeying my, parent, my parents. And so I knew that it was sinful, and I thought that his death was caused by me. And let me tell you, I, from that night on, probably for a good seven or eight years at least, I did not stay up one night after bedtime. I don't think, I can't recall ever pulling out blocks or Legos or something after bedtime again, because this thought was just nagging in my head. And over time, it kind of faded, and it kind of just went into the background, but it always kind of was there, controlling what I did. You see, because of this belief, my behavior changed. See, that's the power of beliefs. What we believe about the world, 
about ourselves can actually affect how we behave. See, psychology tells us this reality. There's a quote, I think it's um, Abigail Brenner. Perfect, sweet, I didn't memorize the quote. So It says, your beliefs create and dictate what your attitudes are. Your attitudes create and dictate how you respond. In other words, they dictate your feelings. And your feelings largely determine how you behave. In other words, how, what you believe about yourself dictates how you see yourself. How you see yourself dictates how you feel about yourself. How you feel about yourself largely determines how you behave. How we see ourselves, how we identify ourselves determines the actions we will take. See, research has looked into this a little bit. Um, research has told us a couple different things through a couple different studies. One of the studies, they, they were researching the impact of self-belief and self-confidence in, in the job market. And this study, they came back and they, they found that if you believe you are competent, capable, and deserving of your dream job, you are much more likely to take steps towards fulfilling that dream, towards attaining that dream. You're much more likely to notice the different things going on. You're much more likely to notice different opportunities that will advance you to where you want to be. And then once you eventually get there and you're in the interview, you're much more likely to have a good interview. But if you believe you're incompetent, incapable, and don't deserve that dream job, you're much more likely to miss all those opportunities, and if you ever eventually get there, to bomb on the interview. Research also tells us that if you believe you are capable of effectively completing a task or a goal, such as exercising or eating well, if you believe you can complete your goal of getting fit, you are much more likely to actually even start to try and attain that goal. But if you believe that you will never, ever get fit, then you're not very likely to even try. Not likely to try and eat healthy. Not likely to try and exercise. And if you do, you're much more likely to actually give up when that happens because one week in, oh, I don't see any results. Yeah, it's been a week, but you don't believe in yourself, so it affects how you behave. And research also tells us that that different feelings can affect our behavior, such as guilt. Guilt is the feeling of, I did something wrong. That can actually positively motivate us to change our behavior, to stop doing what was wrong. But shame, which is the feeling that I am something wrong. Guilt, feeling I did something wrong. Shame, I am something wrong. Shame can undermine your hope, destroy your chances of change and actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy causing you to go back into the behavior that you're ashamed of. Because what we believe about ourselves determines how we behave. And you see, the issue with that is when we believe a label about ourselves that is not true that label begins to define who we are, begins to shape our actions. I believed that, I believed that 
Me playing with blocks after bedtime was the cause of my grandpa's death, so I stopped playing with blocks. I believed a lie that shaped my behavior. And you see, the issue with believing a lie about yourself is that you begin to actively put your faith in your label instead of putting your faith in God. Because the reality is that we cannot allow ourselves to think about ourselves in a way that God does not think about us. We cannot allow ourselves to see ourselves in a way that God does not see us. Because God is the one who created us. He is the one who formed us. He is the one who gave us the gifts and talents we have. He is the one who knows us more than we know ourselves. So he is the one who gets to label us. Our labels should come from God. They shouldn't come from our actions. They shouldn't come from our addictions. They shouldn't come from our friends. They shouldn't come from our family. They shouldn't come from our pastors. They shouldn't come from some stranger on the street who doesn't know your story but mocks you anyways. Our labels come from God, the God who formed us in our mother's womb, the God who loved us despite our flaws, God who chose us before we were born. Our identity comes from him and him alone. See, we cannot allow ourselves to see ourselves in a way that God does not see us. So it is important that we begin to see ourselves through the eyes of our Savior if we are to live the life he's calling us to. So Paul in, in Romans 7, he is showing us this label he has been carrying. This label of sinner. And there's no need to over-spiritualize or complicate this, this label. What this label essentially means is that if you believe you're a sinner, you believe that you are prone to do wrong. You are prone to sin. You're prone to do what is wrong. And how many of you guys know that sin is when you know what is right and you know what is wrong, but you do what is wrong anyways? So what Paul is saying is, I know what is right and I know what is wrong, but I do what's wrong anyways. I am a sinner. And he's showing us this reality he has lived in, this reality of someone who knows what is right and knows what is wrong and can't keep away from doing what is wrong. In this book, he's writing to the Romans and he says, I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. It's quite depressing, eh? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do the, what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I try to do what is right, but I fail. I try to do what is good, but I fail. I try to do what God says, but I fail. I try to free, flee from sin, but I fail. How awful I am. And in this moment, we see a, a man who has a heart to follow God had a heart to follow God, but found himself failing, constantly wanting what was right and not being able to do it and hating himself for it. You know, maybe that's your experience here today. You know what is right and you know what is wrong, but you find yourself doing what is wrong anyways. And like Paul, 
You want to do the right thing, but you find yourself constantly failing. Because it is human nature to link our identity to our actions, we see ourselves doing the wrong thing, and we attribute our actions to our identity. I do, therefore I am. I sin, therefore I'm a sinner. And we believe that we are merely a sinner that is in our nature to do what is evil, that we want to do what is right, but we're prone to do what is evil because we are sinners. And you know, this is a belief that so many people across the world today believe. So many Christians across this earth today believe. So many followers of Jesus in this very room believe. believe that, we believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died and he, he saved us to rescue us from hell and that's it. That now when we believe in Jesus, we, we get to go to heaven and, and, and that's it. Now we're merely saved sinners. People who will never be free from sin until the day we die. And we believe this label that tells us we are rotten, we are dirty, we are awful, we're broken, we're sinners which in turn becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It begins to shape how you act. And because we link our actions to our identity, we believe, we observe our sins and we believe I sin, therefore I am a sinner. But I have to ask you this question this morning. Is that actually how God sees us? Is that actually the truth? Am I truly defined by my actions? Or am I defined by my creator? How does God see me? Does he see me as a sinner? Or does he see me as something more? Because the reality is that I cannot afford to believe something about myself that God does not first see in me. So if God sees me as a sinner, then by all means, I'm a sinner, I'm rotten, I deserve to go to hell. But if God sees me as something more, as something greater, as something more powerful, something more holy, something more anointed, something that through the power of the cross has cast off the power of darkness and been raised to life through Jesus Christ, then my thinking must change. The way I see myself must change change must come into alignment with how God sees me. If God sees me as a sinner, then by all means, that's who I am. But if God sees me as something more, then what right do I have to redefine myself? So Paul, after this big long tirade of how he wants to follow God's laws, but he can't, how he wants to do what is good, but he can't, after providing all this evidence to prove that he's merely this, this sinner, he says these words. He says, what a wretched man that I am. I'm horrible. I'm broken. I'm awful. I want to do what is right, but I fail. What a wretched, awful person I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for his mighty power has finally provided a way out through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. 
Let that sink in. Paul saying, I was horrible. I was broken. I was lost. I was hurting. I was a sinner. But because of what Jesus did on the cross for me, I am no longer that person anymore. For God sent us his son in human form to identify with human weakness. Clothed with humanity, God's son gave his body to be the sin offering so that God could once and for all condemn the guilt and power of sin. So now we are free to live, not according to our sinful flesh, but by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. I once was a sinner. I once wanted to do what was right, but failed. But now, through Christ, Romans 6, 6 tells us, we have a way out. Our former identity has been stripped of its power. The stronghold of sin that was inside of us has been demolished. And we are free to live, not according to our sinful flesh, and we don't have to live in sin any longer. Through the power of Christ, you are no longer a sinner, but 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are God's chosen treasure, priests who are kings, a spiritual nation, set apart as God's devoted ones. You are holy, you are pure, you are righteous. Through the cross, Romans 6.11 says, Your old self has died to sin, you've been raised to life in Christ. Romans 5.1, You are now flawless in the eyes of God. 2 Peter 1.4, We are partakers of the divine nature, which means that we have access to the holiness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Through Christ, our identity has changed. Who we once were was crucified with him. And we've been raised to life in Christ. But you see, the, the problem that many of us in this room face is that we tend to form our identity based on our actions. We see ourselves doing wrong, we see ourselves doing what we know is wrong, see ourselves living in, in, sin, in sin, and we try to reduce the standard presented in Scripture to match our experience. And we look at God and we say, you must be wrong. Because we have this laundry list of all these things that we do that we know are wrong, but we still do them. And we have this list of things that we're like, God, you say I'm this way, but, but look at all of these things. God, you say I'm not a sinner. God, you say I'm a saint, but, but God, I had been addicted to porn for 15 years. God, I know that was wrong, but I, that still was the experience I was living in. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but, but that's what I was doing anyways. God, you say I'm this way, but I'm acting this way. How can I act one way when you say I'm another thing? You must be wrong. And we reduce the standard of Scripture to match our experience. Let me warn you, that's a very dangerous place to be. Because God will not be reduced to fit your idea of who he is. He has no problem taking your box and blowing it up. He doesn't care what you think about him. He knows who he is. He is not going to allow you to prevent him from being who he is. And if you live life constantly reducing 
who God is, how God sees you, what the Bible says about you to match your experience, then you'll live a life missing the beauty that God has for you. You see, we have this choice. We can choose to see ourselves through the eyes of a sinner or to see ourselves through the eyes of our Savior. See, through the eyes of a sinner, action equals identity. I sin, therefore I'm a sinner. Eyes of our Savior, identity determines your actions. You are a saint. Go and sin no more. Eyes of a sinner, I will never truly be free. Eyes of our Savior, I've already set you free. Eyes of a sinner, I'm awful, horrible, I can't do anything right. Eyes of our Savior, I've already forgiven you of everything you've ever done and will ever do. Eyes of a sinner, I need to follow the rules. I need to do this laundry list of things in order to be holy, in order to be loved, in order for you to accept me, God. Eyes of our Savior, you don't need any of those things. Just believe in me. Eyes of a sinner, I deserve judgment for what I've done. Eyes of our Savior, you are my child. I love you. See, God has set you free from your past. God has set you free from who you once were. God has set you free from what you were before you met him. He has taken your past. He's covered it in love and grace and forgiveness. He's taken who you once were, a sinful human being, and he has made you into a new creation, into a saint, into a priest who is a king and a queen in his kingdom, a chosen treasure, a member of his royal family, family, a free, powerful, anointed, and important child of his. See, when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you and he doesn't see your sin and he doesn't see you as a sinner. He looks at you and he sees what his son did for you. And he sees you as a saint. God's not looking on you with disgust, hatred, anger. He's looking at you through the eyes of love, wishing you would learn to see yourself the way he sees you. Because the reality is that if you believe that you're merely broken, you're merely a sinner, that you can never be free. If you believe in Jesus and you believe you're just a dirty old sinner, then you've been living in a lie that has reduced your hope, become a self-fulfilling prophecy in your life, caused you to believe something about yourself that God doesn't see in you. God is calling you to a new perspective. See, it is not in our nature to sin anymore. But each and every one of us has a choice. See, if you read the book of Romans, Paul is constantly saying, all the way, especially Romans 4 through 8, Paul is constantly saying, you're dead, you're dead, your old flesh is dead, it's not alive, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. So why would you want to live in sin anymore? You can choose the master that you serve. 
but know that whoever you choose to serve will have bondage over you. So each and every one of us has a choice. We can choose to follow Jesus and accept our new identity and believe that we are holy, we are righteous, we are saints, we don't have to live in service to sin anymore and recognize that when temptation comes because just because you are no longer a sinner doesn't mean you won't be tempted and you might won't do wrong, but that it's that temptation is no longer coming from inside of you because Ephesians 6 tells us that our, we're, our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of darkness, spirits who rule in the kingdom realm. Realize that temptation is not coming from us, but it's coming from an enemy that is trying to come and destroy us. You can choose to, to believe your new identity that Jesus has given you, or, or you can choose to believe a lie about yourself, to believe that you are broken, you're prone to sin, that is an inevitable aspect of your life, that you won't be free from sin until you die. But let me warn you there, to quote a, a pastor named Georgian Banoff, he, he says, if you believe that you won't be free from sin until the day you die, Jesus is no longer your savior, death is. We have a choice. We can believe what Jesus says about us or we can believe a lie. And that choice is yours. In a moment, I'm going to get you guys to, to bow your heads and close your eyes. Not yet, but in a moment. The idea behind that is to give a moment of privacy to everyone around. And if you're here today and you've been believing a lie and you want to know how God sees you, you've been believing a lie about yourself that you're broken, you're, you're disgusting, God doesn't love you because of these things you've done, that you can never be free from these things. The moment when I get people to bow their heads and close their eyes, I just want you to put your hands out in a posture of receiving like this. And so, and then I'm going to ask you to, uh, as I begin to pray, I'm not going to get you guys to put your hands up. I'm not going to get you to stand up. I'm not going to get you to come to the front. Just put your hands out in a posture of receiving. And then as the band plays and I'll, I'll pray, and I want you to ask God this one simple question. Daddy, how do you see me? How do you see me? And then just take a moment and listen for the voice of love. You see, I believe God wants to encounter each and every one of you where you are right now. And an encounter with God is an encounter with love. Perfect love casts out all fear. All fear of not being enough, all fear of not being free, all fear of not being worthy of love. So if I can get everyone to just close your eyes and bow your heads, just give people around you a moment of privacy. If you're here today and you've been believing a lot, put your hands out just on your lap. Posture receiving. God that question, how do you see me? How do you see me, God? 
you see me as broken, or do you see me as whole? Do you see me as a slave, or do you see me as free? Do you see me as unlovable, or do you see me as already loved? Do you see me as a sinner, or do you see me as a saint? God saying to me that there's someone here who believes a lie that they're not worth anything. That their life should just end and nobody would care. In the name of Jesus, we command the spirit of suicide to leave this room. This perfect love wraps around each and every person. The spirit of suicide leaves this room. saying there's someone here who believes that they've screwed everything up that their kids they didn't raise them right that they're just a mistake they just made so many mistakes and they've broken so many relationships and God's just saying to you right now that he's the God who restores he's the God who takes broken hearts and mends them, brings them back into the reality, takes broken relationships and brings healing to them. Father God, I pray over each and every person in this room, Lord. Each and every person who has lived believing a lie about who they are, believing something about themselves that is not true, believing something that you do not say about them, God, that you do not see them, God. I just pray that as you encounter each person here today, Lord, that your voice of love will be speaking into their minds, God, telling them how you see them, how you see them as loved, how you see them as perfect, how you chose them before they were born, how you loved them before they were born, how in love you, you chose them to be your chosen treasure, which means that they have value. In love, you chose them to be priests, which means they have access to you no matter what. In love, you chose them to be kings and queens in your kingdoms, which mean in your kingdom, which means that they have authority and power. You chose them to be your children, and you are a father who is always near, who is always present, who is always loving who is always gracious, who is always bringing healing. You're the God who brings comfort to the brokenhearted. You're the God who brings peace to the rest of the soul. You're the God who brings healing to what is, is broken. Father God, I just pray that as we go into our weeks, into our week, that we will pursue you every day. Each and every day, we'll just take a moment to pursue you to listen for your voice, to ask you a question, God, how do you see me? And to listen for your voice so that we can go into each and every day knowing who we truly are. Pray this in your holy, holy, holy name.